0: Good morning and welcome to Life Connection, a ministry of First Baptist Church of Joplin. We're glad that you're taking the time to join us this morning as Pastor Jamie shares an uplifting message with us from God's Word. This sermon was recorded from our 1030 service at our downtown location at 633 South Pearl in Joplin, Missouri. We have been journeying, looking at Rescue. Rescue. We've been finding spots in the Scriptures where God has rescued people or His people from particular uh, danger. You may remember the very first one we looked at was when Peter got out of the boat and he started walking to Jesus in the middle of the storm on the water. And when he did that, he started to sink when he saw the wind and the waves boisterous. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And as he was sinking, the Bible says that Jesus immediately stretched out His hand, grabbed Peter and rescued him. And we looked at how in our lives, that when we're we're sinking in sin or despair or guilt, and we looked at the real life story of Donna Westervelt and the loss of her daughter at 18 years old, and how that was such a devastation for her. But God reached down in the midst of her despair, in that pit of turmoil that she was going through, that spiral of sorrow, and He reached in and He has secured her and sustained her, through that very difficult time in her life. You may remember the second week, we looked at how Lot, the nephew of Abraham, was brought out of a very wicked place at a very wicked time. And we looked at the real life story of when, another real life story of when Kevin and Stephanie Best's marriage was absolutely falling apart. It was it was falling apart and crumbling in every way possible. And how God showed up in the middle of their living room one morning and and brought about restoration and forgiveness. And God truly... Uh, "...rescued their marriage." We also looked last week at the three in the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They stood up for what was right. They did not compromise on their beliefs. And because of that, their faith got them in trouble. They found themselves thrown into a fiery furnace. But when King Nebuchadnezzar saw that those three were thrown in, he went back to look and said, "...did we not throw three men bound into the fiery furnace? Then why are there now four and the fourth is walking around?" As the Son of God, God was in there protecting them from the damage of the flames. And we realize that God does not just rescue us from pits, He does not just rescue us from utter destruction, but He can rescue us and sustain us in the midst of the trials. That our faith get us into, and even though we've looked at all three of these accounts of of Simon Peter, the disciple sinking in the water, we looked at Lot being brought rescued out of Sodom and Gomorrah before it was destroyed, and then we looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being rescued from the fiery furnace. This morning we are looking at a biblical account of rescue, but we're not looking at one particular person in the scriptures. This morning, the best way to title this, I believe, the person that is at the center of our study this morning is the person next door, the person that works next to you in the cubicle, the person that may live next to you. Maybe it's the person sitting beside you in your seat. This morning, it's not about a biblical example, but I hope that we will be able to take the things that we have learned about how God delights in rescuing us from sin and from the effects of sin and from destruction, and how God loves to bring about restoration and renewal. And we might look not just simply at these examples that we find in the Bible, but we might ask ourselves that question this morning. God, who are you wanting to rescue in my life? God, who are you wanting to reach in and grab out of the pit of despair, out of the pit of sin, out of the pit of destruction? Who, God, in my life, who is that person that you want to get a hold of and realize this morning that God wants to use you and I as a tool to be on mission with Him to rescue those in whom He has placed in our life? And this morning, I want you to join me. In Starting in verse 11. Romans chapter 10, verse 11, please. For the Scripture says, Whoever believes on Him, Him being Christ, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him, on Him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent?" As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Let's stop there. The apostle is writing to the Christians in Rome, and he is uh, stirring them up, reminding them what it is to be saved, equipping them to share the gospel, and, and, and especially in this part of the book of Romans, he is reminding them that God has not cast off His people Israel, but has a very special plan for them. But in that special plan He has for Israel, the apostle is reminding the Roman Christians that all of mankind, whether Jew or Greek, whether barbarian, whether Gentile, it makes no difference. The apostle makes it clear that if one is to be saved, one has to come into faith of Jesus Christ. Whether Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. He has now said that all are under the same condemnation and all have been given the same privilege to come to God through Jesus Christ. And he says, I want us to jump back to verse 13 for a minute. And look at this wonderful verse. This verse that has encouraged Uh, So many people down through centuries, it says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And there's that word saved. It's a word that we have referenced, that we have talked about, we have mentioned it many times. But we also, in this series of messages, have discussed how the word saved also means rescued. And what he's saying is that for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be rescued. And I told you, even though we're using a different outline this morning than we have the previous three weeks, the same three elements apply to any rescue. Whether you're being rescued from a burning house, whether your marriage is being rescued from utter destruction, Whether your soul is being rescued from hell, three things have to happen. And for those of you that have been here through this series, you know what the first one is, is that you have to have harm. You can't be rescued if you're not in danger. You have to be in danger before you can be rescued from it. Rescued is being brought out from danger or peril or destruction. So the first element in rescue has to be harm. The second element, ingredient, that you have to have in order to be rescued is that there has to be helplessness. You have to be in that place where you cannot get yourself out. You cannot undo what you've done. Donna had said in her testimony when she was grieving over that loss, she talked about how it was so tempting to just try to go away and and shut out the world and, and continue on that downward spiral of sorrow and grief. But what we have found is that in the middle of that that helplessness, God reached in in a moment and gave her the strength that she was not able to muster up herself. The Kevin and Stephanie Bess had come to the place where they were unable to fix that marriage themselves. They didn't even want to repair it in many cases, but God came and did something that only God could do to provide for them the strength and the resources in order to overcome that destruction, to restore and renew that marriage. And the same thing is true with our lost soul. We have to be able to recognize the harm. And here the Scripture, using the word saved or salvation, reminds us again that there is harm. It is real harm. It is imminent harm. And we know from the Scriptures that that if if one is not saved, it is an eternal harm. It is an eternal destruction in 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 an existence that was not designed for you or me. It was designed for the devil and his angels. But the place is called hell. And when we are saved, we are saved from... That harm, that destruction, where our soul will spend eternity without Christ. That's the harm. The helplessness says that we can't save ourselves. We cannot undo the wrong we've done. Some of you have heard me use the example of basketball, and it's March Madness now. So here's that example again, that if I got up to the free throw line, and I stepped up and I shot my first free throw and made it, I'm not a math major, but I would be 100%. Many of you would probably tell me to stop right there. If I got another basketball and I went up and I shot a second one and missed, my percentage would go down to what? 50. You are math majors. So I've now gone from 100% because I made the first one to 50% because I'm one for two. If I went and made, here math majors, if I went and made a million more shots in a row, what would my percentage be? Oh, we're all quiet now, aren't we? Yes, exactly. My, my, I can tell you what my percentage wouldn't be. It wouldn't be 100. It may be 99.9999 and, and going on for a long time. There would be a lot of nines behind it. But it wouldn't matter how many I made because I still missed one and it's kept me from being 100%. Really, if you think about it, it was really only one sin that needed to separate us from God because He's holy. He's never sinned. And because we have sinned in that sin nature, we are unable to take care of and to deal with and to sacrifice and to meet that atonement for the sin that we have committed. That's why God, that's the good news, that's why God sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life. To meet the standard that you and I could not. And that's why he went to the cross to die in our place. It was a substitutionary death. It was a penal death, in that He took the the, the 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 just the judgment of God on Himself. He took our place to save us from the harm, to provide for us what we were helpless in doing ourselves. Which leads us to the third essential ingredient in a, in any rescue: is there has to be a hero. As we learned with Peter, it was Jesus who reached down into the water at His cry immediately. As we learned with Lot, it was the angels who ultimately were messengers of God who was the ultimate hero who had been spoken to by Abraham who encouraged them to go. And then you may remember last week, indeed, the fourth in the fiery furnace is believed to be the pre-incarnate Christ. They're protecting His people from harm in the midst of that furnace. The hero is always God, getting right into the middle of our lives. Getting right into the middle of our, of our ash heaps. Getting right into the middle of our destruction. Getting right into the middle of our world and our life. And doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Yes, three ingredients must be in every rescue. Harm, helplessness, and a hero. And when we look at that word saved, it's talking about being rescued. Rescued. It's talking about a harm. It's talking about a helplessness, that you're in need of someone else. And ultimately, we know who that is. Whoever shall call on Him. Him being God. Him, more specifically, being Jesus Christ. First, I want you to see the need of rescue. That we need to be saved. Romans 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all in need of rescue every one of us has sinned and therefore every one of us has become separated from god notice in verse 13 the whoever here is the universality of the privilege that even though all of us have sinned the door is open to all who would receive that free gift that there is none that are there are none that are excluded There are none that have sinned too many uh, to be able to be invited by grace to come and receive the free gift. The the, the, the door is literally flung open by Jesus Christ for all to receive. God has not excluded some. God has has not kept some, has not pushed some out, for it is not the will of God that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants all to be saved. For whosoever shall call upon him. You see, even though the door is swung open wide for whoever, there is still one requirement, and that person must call on him. The door stands wide open, the invitation is there, but one must believe that they are in harm, one must believe they are helpless in order to save themselves, and one must indeed fall on the mercy of God, asking Him to forgive them of their sins and to be their Lord and Savior. And upon that belief, they may then enter into the family of God paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. The door is sprung wide open, but in order to enter into that family, one must respond by faith. Call on Him. That's an awesome phrase. In fact, if you read, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that word, that phrase, call on Him, takes on a beautiful word picture. You see when I read it now and I say call on him I think of when I'm I'm calling Bree or something like that and I just want to chat and or I just want to I need to call one of you and I just need to communicate something to you but when you really familiarize yourself with those moments in the Old Testament where that phrase call on him or calling on God was used it was a beautiful picture. If you think about it many men of God called on God. Abraham when God had revealed Himself to Abraham and given Abraham the call to go to a country that I will show you, Abraham was so moved by God's call in his life that he then, at that moment in his life, had built an altar and called on the Lord. In the Old Testament, when you hear that phrase, called on the Lord, it always means intense worship and praise. Always. It is the response of a person who has had an amazing encounter with God and calling on God is not simply speaking to him. It is much deeper, much more penetrating in the life than simply muttering words to God. It is a moment when men found themselves face down. It was a moment when men in the Old Testament were giving up their livestock to to pay homage and to, to sacrifice and to give a burnt offering to God. Those were moments when men had tremendous encounters. And what this says, what this Scripture says is that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be moved by faith in an encounter with God who has revealed to them their need of salvation, who has revealed to them their helplessness, and has revealed Himself a true and faithful hero, to all who will call on Him, they shall be saved. The need of salvation. Some of you have trusted Christ as your Savior. And we come in this morning praising Him. Those songs give new meaning to the tune of our heart as we we, we sing those words to a God who saw our harm, who saw our helplessness, and before the foundation of the world put in order His plan to redeem us. Because He is our faithful hero. Amen? Notice the second thing, the means of rescue this morning. The means of rescue. Now, Jesus is the one who did the work. Jesus is indeed the one who went to the cross, who paid the penalty. There's no man on earth that could take your place for the substitution of your sins in full. It had to be Jesus. But I want you to notice the role that the apostle, in speaking about this universal opportunity for salvation, I want you to see the role and the relationship that those of us who are saved play and cooperating with God. Notice what he says in verse 14. He says anybody can be saved if they respond in faith. But then verse 14 says, How then shall they call on Him? Remember, how then shall they pray? How then shall they worship? How then, in this context, shall they come to that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in whom they have not believed? How shall they call on him? How shall they get to that place where they cry out recognizing the harm, recognizing their helplessness, recognizing the hero? How shall they get to that place if they have never believed? You see, Abraham believed from his encounter with God that God existed. He believed God's call. He believed that obedience was a result, was to be a result of this. And Abraham fell down and worshiped. And what the Bible tells me in this particular instance is that before someone can call on God, they have to believe. Now that word believe gets thrown around a lot. I would imagine if you probably took a a poll of people, you would find a large amount of people, and the numbers vary. You would find a huge number of people that say, well, I believe in God. God. And so oftentimes we're tempted when someone says, I believe in God, that we we pass on and we move on and and account that that is a sufficient answer. But the Bible says there is only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12 tells us there is only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That word believe does not just mean, well, I believe that I believe in God the same way that I believe Chevy trucks are the best, or the way I believe that the Atlanta Braves are not just going to the World Series, but they're going to win it. That we, we use the word believe for a lot of different things, but I want to show you something. Hop down with me to verse 16. I want you to notice something awesome about verse 16 and what it says about the word belief. It says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord who has believed our report. Verse 16, by quoting the prophet Isaiah, is now putting two words on the same level. He says, they have not all believed our report. Because he quotes Isaiah saying, Lord, who has believed our report? Putting obey and belief on the same level. To believe is not simply to have in your mind that you think it it, it exists. It is not simply to believe in the existence of God. But this belief that we find in Scripture, this belief that is essential for salvation, is one that leads to a change of the will, is one that leads to a life of obedience. If you and I say that we believe God, believe in God, and yet are not walking in obedience to God, there is serious reason for us to question our original belief in Him. Isaiah puts belief And obey. They're not obeying God. Therefore, how can we believe that they even believe in God? If I'm going to believe, it is not simply this mental thought. It's not simply this up here thinking, well, yeah, God exists. It's walking in obedience to Him. It's a a faith that brings about an action, a change of the will, or a submission to the one in whom I believe exists. If we say we believe in Jesus, then we ought to obey Jesus. Would you agree with that? If we say we believe in God, we ought to walk in obedience to Him. Notice this next word. He says, in essence, asking this question, we cannot, they cannot call on Him if they do not believe in Him. And now the direction starts to change. He says, how can they believe? How shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? How shall they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? First, they must call in order to be saved. But how can they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And now He steps it up even more and says, how can they believe on Him In whom they have not heard. There are really two two mutual responsibilities here. There's first a a responsibility on the part of the hearer. We hear many things in life. We have many voices that we are tuned into. We have many things that compete for our attention. But what he is saying, what he is suggesting, is that there should be a responsibility in the things that we have heard. And when the Gospel is preached... When the name of Jesus is proclaimed, when the things of God are discussed, knowing their eternal weight of those words, we ought to pay close attention. Would you agree? When the word of God is spoken, when the things of God are discussed, when the name of Jesus is proclaimed, we ought to be able to push away all of those other things that are competing for our attention and listen closely because of the eternal weight and consequences of those words. I know a man, his name is Glenn. He is a man who has greatly encouraged me early on in my ministry. I came to know him because he and his wife visited a previous church that I pastored and they came to visit because they had been married in that church 50 years before and they wanted to see it again. And they came in and and, and visited and, and they started coming and attending the services there. And Glenn was and still is an incredibly godly man. And he has such poor eyesight. His eyes, for whatever reason, uh, have, have, have deteriorated over time. And he wears really thick glasses and it's really hard for him to see. But he has taught me something about listening and giving the proper place to the Word of God. He recently went to a Bible study that was held in a home. And as everybody was there in the living room and they were opening up their Bibles and they were going over this topic and discussing... The leader of the Bible study knew that he could not call on Glenn to read because Glenn's eyesight was so poor. And he never realized how poor Glenn's eyesight was until he had seen him in the Bible study that day. The man told me that he sat with a magnifying glass this close to his Bible so he could read the words on the page. In the middle of this Bible study, holding his Bible so close and adjusting just so he could see the words on the page. Was he reading the Bible because he needed to be saved? No. Glenn knew the Lord. Glenn loved the Lord. Did he need to, was he reading the Bible and paying that much attention to it and giving it that place of respect in his life because he needed it? Yes. He needed the encouragement. He needed the strength of the promises. But Glenn also knew that it was not just about him. Glenn would read the Bible, would study the Bible. Even under such difficulty as that, he would spend time studying the Word that he loved because he knew that other people needed it too. He wanted to take the Word in so that he might share it with others. First, how can they... Call on him in whom they have not believed. And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? We all have a responsibility to listen. But here's where the mutual responsibility comes in. It's not just now the responsibility of the recipient to receive. It's the responsibility of the faithful to give them something to listen to. You see, that's the original emphasis. The original emphasis is not laid on the fact of the person hearing. The original emphasis actually reads and gives us uh, and alludes to the fact that they are listening, but they're not having anyone speak. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe when they have not heard? It's telling us that hearing is essential to believing. There was a man in the Gospels. He was sitting on the side of a highway, and he was a beggar. His name was Bartimaeus. And he sat there just hoping that some benevolent soul would come by and drop coins down for him to make his living by. And as he sat there on the side of the highway in between Jericho and Jerusalem, he hears the rustle of many feet. And the Bible tells us that he finds out that the rustle of the many feet that are walking down the Jericho road is because Jesus is there and a whole bunch of people around him. So obviously, Bartimaeus had to ask, Hey, what's going on? Why is everybody, why is there so many people walking down this road? And they obviously tell him that it's Jesus of Nazareth. When Bartimaeus, who was blind from his birth, hears that it's Jesus of Nazareth, he cries out, Lord, have mercy on me, son of David. And those that are with Jesus tell him to be quiet, and yet he cries out even the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. To which the Bible says that Jesus stops, commands him to be brought into him, and then once they're in the road, Jesus asks him what he wants. He says, to receive my sight. Jesus restores his sight, and he is healed from that moment and follows Jesus. But the great thing about that story is this. Bartimaeus could not see anything. He he had never seen Jesus before. He had never seen anybody healed. He had never seen Lazarus raised from the dead. He had never seen a leper lose his disease. He had never seen any of those things. But he was able to exercise his faith in Christ based solely off of what he heard about Jesus. He didn't have the eyesight to see. But clearly he had heard that Jesus was a healer of the sick. He clearly had heard that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He clearly believed that Jesus was the one to come from the loins of Jesse, who would be the king above all kings. You know the great thing about it? When you and I testify of what the Lord has done in our life, we may have no idea who those spiritually blind people are around us who may someday call out on Jesus, not because of what they have seen Him do in our lives, but what they have heard He is capable of doing in the lives of others. How shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? It is essential that we are involved in the job of proclaiming. Why? Because it says, how shall they hear without a... Preacher. Now, this is where we take our spiritual hiatus, right? This is where we get our pens and our highlighters and say, okay, pastor, it says right there. Preacher, it says right here. That is your job. Right there, black and white. How shall they hear without a preacher? We've got one, so move on to the next point. Pastor, the word preacher of course, means proclaimer. Can I tell you something? I joke about that. I joke to you and say that there are some that will say, Pastor, it's right there, black and white. How shall they hear without a preacher? We've got one, so let's move on. But let me tell you something. I said that in jest, but there's an underlying serious tone in that joke. There are a lot of us that would much rather some we 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 believe that someone else needs to do it. We believe that it needs to be done. But we don't want to be the ones to do it ourselves. Let me share a few quick words with you. Right? You might want to jot these words down. When we are presented with the responsibility of sharing the gospel, When we are are presented with that that responsibility to share the gospel, there are usually many different responses that come from that responsibility. And the first one is this. we We want to disprove the call. You may just jot that down. We want to disprove the call. When you hear someone talk about how it is each individual believer's responsibility to bear witness to the truth and the reality and the saving plan of Jesus Christ, we have a temptation to go right to the heart of that and try to disprove the call. We are tempted to go back to Romans chapter 10 and say, ah, it says here, preachers, so that must mean the man on Sunday morning who stands up behind the pulpit with a microphone, and that's his job. So we try to disprove the call, to say that it's not for everybody. We try to we try to invalidate that truth. The second thing is this, we try to diminish the effect. We try to say, well, it's not really that bad. If 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 I don't reach them, if I don't talk to them about Jesus, someone else will. Do you remember me telling you? I've done this with several churches. I've asked the church this question. And I won't ask you to respond to this, but I asked them this question. I said, how many of us, speaking of us in general, as a Bonnie, how many of us have failed to share our faith in Jesus Christ with someone? Because we felt like someone else was going to do it. How many of us have failed to share our faith in Christ because we believed that someone else would do it? And every time I've asked that, in three different churches, 75%, three out of four hands went up. Now think about that for a minute. If I said, how many of you have failed to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone because you thought someone else was going to do it, three out of four hands went up and said, that's me, I've done that. My hand went up also because I'm one of those. And I asked those three churches. I said, if three out of four of us have failed to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone because we thought someone else was going to do it, what do you think the church down the street? What do you think the percentage is there? What do we think the percentage is of the other church down the street? And you know what? More than likely, that church is 75%. You know what? More than likely, that church is 75%. And that church is 75% over there. And I started to come to grips with the reality that I believe that lost people aren't slipping through the cracks. They're falling through gaping holes. Because we're all thinking that someone else is going to do it. We have either tried to disprove the call or to diminish the effects. I don't want to do it, but you know what? I bet someone else is going to do it. Here's the third thing. We try to disqualify ourselves. Uh, I'm not capable of doing it. I, I don't know the Bible that well. And sometimes we try to keep ourselves in, in this place where we're not, we're not, we feel like we're disqualified so we don't have to do it. We either try to do, disprove the call, diminish the effect, or disqualify ourselves saying, no, I'm not the one for that. And that leads us to the fourth and final thing that we try to do when presented with the responsibility we try to direct focus elsewhere. Nah, I can't do it. But you know what? That would be a great job for you. That's not really my cup of tea. But you know what? You could do that. Those are all ways that we try to get around the responsibility of the call. Would you all agree with me that a soul dying without Christ and spending an eternity in hell is, is the worst possible existence ever would you all agree with that from what the bible says about the reality of the existence of hell would we all agree that that is the worst possible existence that a soul could possibly go through and if that is true if that is true let's plug this, these four excuses back into this illustration that we've been using these past few weeks and that's of the burning house if the burning house, if we're going down the road and we see this house is burning and we know there are people inside, if we plug these same excuses into that house burning mentality, then what we're going to say first is, oh, well, the house really isn't burning. That's really what we would do if we're going to disprove the call. We're going to go to the fact in which the house is burning and we're going to say, no, it's not really burning. It's, it's, it's changing color. It's getting hotter, but it's not burning, when in reality, it is burning. Then we move on to diminishing the effect, right? Oh, it's burning, yeah, everybody can see that. There are flames, but the people are going to be fine. Really? Really. A burning house, they're inside, you know they're inside, you now know, and you've come to grips with the reality that it's burning, and yet you say they're going to be fine. Which leads to the third one. We disqualify ourselves. I I can't go in there. I've never saved anybody before. I can't go in there. I've never gone through training. I can't go in there. I don't know the blueprints of the home. I can't go in there. I'm not capable of doing it. The urgency of the situation demands a response of some kind. We try to disprove the call. We try to diminish the effects. We try to disqualify ourselves. And in that same instance, we would try to direct focus elsewhere. Hey, someone needs to get in there and get those people. When we realize that the fire is burning, the house is coming down, the people are in danger, and we're unwilling to be a part, we try to look for other people to do it. I would imagine... if we were presented in a scenario where there was absolute danger for a person and we were within and we were within the ability to do something about it and we neglected to do it, I would imagine that you and I would be grieved in our spirit. If we walked by the burning house, please hear me, if we walked by the burning house capable of doing something, knowing the danger, and did nothing, and the consequences were that that family was harmed, I would imagine we would weep bitter tears. And yet we can go so often without sharing the truth Of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and maybe not give much of a thought to that person's eternal destiny. I was driving home, I saw a deer hit on my road. And it had been hit in the backside and it was trying to drag itself off of the road. And it was cold in the morning, you know, there was the frost on the ground and I looked at that deer and that deer looked at me and and I had come up on it and I would looked at that deer and the, the deer's eyes were just huge. I mean, they're big anyway, but they were just huge. It was terrified. It was afraid. Car, it's right in the middle of the road. There are cars all around it. And I thought to myself, I'm going to get out and pull that deer around. And I thought, you know what, I don't know that that's a real wise thing. And I'll be honest with you, just seeing that image of that deer in the middle of the road trying to get off the road and how terrified and scared it was, it, it affected me. I, was, I felt horrible for it. So I went home and I called the, the sheriff's department to come and, and to get the deer. But you know what, the amazing thing was, I drove by that deer and because I saw a deer that was hurt, It really bothered me. And yet I can walk by people who don't know Jesus, may not know Jesus, and I can keep my mouth shut with the gospel about that one thing that can give them hope, that can give them peace, that can give them true joy in this life and in the life to come, and yet I can walk away from that and not have my heart broken? I think the problem is with me. Maybe I have truly tried to discredit the call diminish the effects, disqualify myself, and direct attention elsewhere. When it comes down to it, Jesus said in John chapter 20, Just as the Father has sent me, so I also send you. How shall they hear? How shall they believe except they hear? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach? except they be sent. When I am sent, that word sent, talks about mission, intentionality, and responsibility. I should recognize in my life as a believer, it is not just for me to experience the fullness of joy in my new life in Christ, but to be a witness in all things. When Paul says, how shall they hear without a preacher? Do we know how many different roles that took in order for him to preach? He may have said this word, but more than likely it was was written down by someone else who was listening to what he was saying as he would dictate it to them. So it was him communicating it, someone else writing it down, and then someone else carrying the message over to those believers in Rome. Three people had a hand in preaching this message from the mouth to the hands to the feet, carrying it out. We all have a responsibility and a role in getting the word of the truth of the gospel out to those who need to hear it in many different fashions and forms and yet often we stay silent we would much rather stay reserved out of fear than to move forward in faith oh there is a particular joy that only the soul winner knows there is a particular joy that he who casts the net to bring it in seeing souls saved and brought in from the deep dark abyss of a sinful sea they are the ones who are able to rejoice unlike many others who have never gone out to collect souls for Jesus. The joy to know that God would use us in such a manner as to let us be a small part of His big plan in redeeming the world through the blood of His Son Jesus Christ, carrying the message for Him. Amen. Notice this third and final thing, please, with me this morning. The need of rescue, that we all, all mankind is in need of it. The means of rescue, we call on, believed, heard, preach, sent. And then the message of rescue. And I want to take a minute and look at verse 15 with me. He quotes Nahum and Isaiah in verse 15. And he says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. In the Old Testament, where he is taking this from, glad tidings... Of good things a gospel of peace at that time really meant one thing what it meant was when someone came back with glad tidings of good things when someone came back with a gospel of peace it meant this that the army had been had been in another country fighting their enemies and they had come back now from that foreign field and they've come back to the homeland and they have said that we have won. The enemy has been defeated. In, in Nahum's time, it was the Assyrians. God had pronounced that the Assyrians would be defeated. They were arch enemies of the Israelites. And God, through Nahum, had prophesied that they would be beat. And Nahum comes back and he proclaims that the enemy is about to be defeated. In Isaiah's time, he is proclaiming that that good news the beautiful feet, or is the messenger that comes back and says, we won. And the great thing about it is, the message that you and I are called to share, the message that makes the feet beautiful, is one that we get to come back on behalf of our Lord and say, He won. We get to come back to a hurting world. We get to come back to a lost people and say our King has come to this world. Has fought our enemy. Has won victorious. And we come back with the message that we have victory. That's what makes... Feet beautiful. The message of victory. They are glad. They are peaceful. It is a victorious message indeed. I read something that challenged me. And I want to share this with you as we wrap this up. there's no shortage of information and illustrations that are given in regards to the need to share the gospel. And I read across one that really, frankly, wouldn't let go. And it was by a professor of missions named E. Myers Harrison. And it's entitled, Four Reasons Why We Must. Four Reasons Why We Must. He gives four biblical reasons why we must share our faith. And the first one he says is the command from above. When Jesus said in Mark 16, 15, go into all the world. That's the command from above. Jesus said go. The third, the second was the cry from beneath. And that's taken from the Gospel of Luke chapter 16 when Jesus is telling the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And Lazarus and the rich man died. And Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom and the rich man went to hell. And being in hell, he lifted up his eyes in torments and sees Lazarus in Abraham's bosom afar off. And when he realizes he's in hell and he's not going anywhere and he can't escape, the rich man says, send Lazarus to my father's house, that he may testify, for I have brethren there also. He says that we must go, we must speak, not simply from the command from above, but because of the cry from beneath. Secondly is the call from outside, the Macedonian church, in Acts chapter 16 that said, come and help us. And fourthly is the compellence from within. When the Apostle said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for the love of Christ compels us. I told you throughout this series, That God does not want our lives to be destroyed. God does not want us to spend an eternity apart from him. He delights in, in us coming to know him as his savior. The angels of God rejoice more over one sinner that repents, more than 99 just persons that need no repentance. We know what the heart of God is. We know what his will is. The question is, what is our heart? I told you that care exists before prayer. And we're going we're to pray about what we care about. And I want to ask you, just in the title of this message, who is that person in your life that's lost? Who's that person in your life you think may not have a relationship with Jesus that needs to know Jesus? And I want to ask you, can we continue to walk by those people being silent? Not being a witness to them in any fashion. Word, life, activities. Can we continue to walk by them day after day without having a heart broken over their lost condition? Can we continue to walk by them remaining silent, knowing that there's a God who wants to rescue them? What a privilege it is that God delights and incorporates us into his plan. We hope that this broadcast has been a blessing to you. If you're without a church home, we'd love for you to drop in and visit one of our many weekly services. We offer ministries for every age. For more information regarding the church and the ministries we offer, visit us on the web at fbcjoplin.org. For prayer requests or to receive a free, unedited copy of this sermon, please call the church office at area code 417-624-4585. And thank you for being a part of Life Connection.